Good morning. Today is Sunday, December 26th, 2021. Tom Waits once wrote, The world is a hellish place, and bad writing is destroying the quality of our suffering. Joan Didion died this past Thursday at the age of 87. Didion was a writer, a journalist. She wrote screenplays together with her husband, John Gregory Dunn. I have followed and admired her work for decades. She was an incredible writer. Zadie Smith another incredible, much younger writer, for whom Didion was a role model, wrote, You didn't have to agree with her, but you had to submit to her sentences. She was exceptionally alert to the words and phrases we use to express our core aims or beliefs. And Joan herself was just another subject among many, prone to the petty delusions of all humans, but crucially, genuinely interested in drilling down into that hard pan, no matter what she might find down there. In December 2003, John Dunn and Joan Didion saw their only daughter, Quintana, fall ill. First it seemed like the flu, then it appeared to be pneumonia, and then it was complete septic shock, and she was put into an induced coma and placed on life support. A few days after that, Joan and John were sitting down to dinner together at their home in New York just the night before New Year's Eve, and John Gregory Dunn suffered a massive and fatal coronary with no warning. Simply, he immediately passed away. In 2005, shortly after that, Didion published a memoir which was her attempt to make sense of the weeks and then months that cut loose any fixed idea I ever had about death, about illness, about marriage and children and memory about the shallowness of sanity and about life itself. Among her many works, it is this work that made the deepest impression on me, and I highly recommend it to you. And it's titled The Year of magical thinking.
in it, among many, many other descriptions, reflections, and wisdom, she differentiates between mourning in gr and grief in this way. Mourning, despite our preparation, indeed despite our age, dislodges things deep in us, sets off reactions that surprise us. We might, in that indeterminate period they call mourning, be in a submarine, silent on the ocean's bed, aware of the depth charges, now near and now far, buffeting us with recollections. Mourning may, f I'm sorry, mourners, may feel like they are wrapped in a cocoon or blanket. To others, they may look as if they are holding up well because the reality of death has not yet penetrated awareness. Survivors can appear to be quite accepting of the loss, and she refers to this as the pretty cool customer effect. Grief, she writes, is different. Grief has no distance. Grief comes in waves, paroxysms, sudden apprehensions that weaken the knees and blind the eyes and obliterate the dailiness of life. Grief is a feeling of tightness in the throat, choking with shortness of breath, need for sighing, and an empty feeling in the abdomen. And here's the passage I find so moving, so insightful, I often recommend reading it to others who are going through this. She writes, Grief turns out to be a place none of us know until we reach it. We anticipate that someone close to us could die, but we do not look beyond the few days or weeks that immediately follow such an imagined death. We misconstrue the nature of even those few days or weeks. We might expect, if the death is sudden, to feel shock. We do not expect this shock to be obliterative, dislocating to both body and mind. We might expect that we will be prostrate, inconsolable, crazy with loss. We do not expect to be literally crazy, cool customers who believe, as in her case, that her husband is about to return. In the, ver in the version of grief we imagine, the model will be healing, 
a certain forward moment will prevail. The worst days will be the earliest days. We imagine that the moment to most severely test us will be the funeral, after which this hypothetical healing will take place. When we anticipate the funeral, we wonder about failing to get through it, to rise to the occasion, to exhibit the, in quotation marks, strength that invariably gets mentioned as the correct response to death. We anticipate needing to steal ourselves for the moment. Will I be able to greet people? Will I be able to leave the scene? Will I even be able to get dressed that day, we have no way of knowing that this will not be the issue. We have no way of knowing that the funeral itself will be anodyne, a kind of narcotic regression in which we are wrapped in the care of others and the gravity and meaning of the occasion, nor can we know ahead of the fact and here lies the heart of the difference between grief as we imagine it and grief as it is, the unending absence that follows, the void, the very opposite of meaning, the relentless succession of moments during which we will confront the experience of meaninglessness itself. Everyone's grieving is unique, and the losses that each of us suffer are also each unique for us. Clearly, Jewish law, customs, and traditions are meant to help us through this. But here's the first step in any attempt to help. Rabbi Elliot Kukla once described a woman with a brain injury who would sometimes fall to the floor. People around her would rush to immediately get her back up to her feet, sometimes before she was quite ready. And this woman told Rabbi Kukla, I think people rush to help me up because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. Joan Didion was more able than most in helping us get down on the ground with her. My friends, I want to wish you a great day. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.